1: Quickly, okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel Kim and Chris. On today's Davis Cup catch-up, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com.
2: Draper delivers a dream debut for GB win. fabrica calls out small crowds. And Simona Halep has handed a four-year ban from the itia
1: Chris, today is the 13th of September and we are here to catch up on the Davis Cup Finals group stage events in Manchester. Tennis Weekly HQ are here. We were at the AO Arena today for GB versus Australia and it is it is non-stop at the moment. I mean, particularly for you, you were New York City, Copenhagen and now Manchester. You you were you're were racking up the air miles.
2: I mean, I may be wrapping up the air miles but Joel you had to get a
1: train up here, I know. Big, know big arduous task for me I, I'm putting in all the commitment here yeah exactly and I think um, <laughs> I even helped you book the train
2: so I, I think maybe that, there's a slight uh, change of the commitment there, but we're here, we're here yeah. together. And we're in our apartment as well. We are, Joel. We always have to put this to you. How, what, how do you rate the Airbnb that Chris booked you?
1: Do you know what? I love the fact you booked someone that's got a rooftop. A rooftop. I know. No, yeah, no, it's exciting. The weather. A more... communal rooftop. Yes. It's... But a rooftop nonetheless. Exactly. It's not private, but <laughs>
2: we do have views across to where the BBC are mm. in Salford. That's something that we can yeah. see. So it we're very close. Yeah. To international broadcasting here.
1: Exactly. And because you know I'm such a southerner, I'd obviously pronounce it wrong and, and say Salford. That that wasn't. And it's a bit awkward. Yeah. It's like as soon as you say that, everyone everyone here just looks at you and you're like, what are you what are you doing?
2: We're in Salford.
1: Yeah, Kim, Kim <laughs> would never get that wrong. We
2: had to say that Kim was unable to join us, but Tennis Weekly HQ is here um, and Kim. We hope that you enjoy all the podcasts yeah. that we do.
1: I mean, we are keeping her up to date on all, all the action as we go in our little in our little WhatsApp group. But yeah, it's firmly me and Chris here until Sunday. We're going to be taking in all the ties. But we're also going to be making sure that we have different talking points outside of the Davis Cup in each episode to make sure that we've got everything covered. And today, Chris, of course, we're going to be talking about GB... Versus Australia. We're also going to have some clips in there. We're going to be hearing from the likes of Jack Draper, Alex de Menor, Let and me Leighton That's Hewitt. I know. It was great, wasn't it? it was I mean, fantastic. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, he got the loudest cheer when all the Australian uh, team were introduced at the beginning. But yeah, we're going to be hearing from them. But before we get into all of that, we're first of all going to talk about the big news this week: Simona Hallett. Simona Hallett has been handed. A four-year ban following breaches of the tennis anti-doping program. Yeah, we've seen her. Um, we've seen her on social media a lot, stating her innocence. Arguably, maybe even too many statements on, on social media. But we finally got a decision uh, this week, and it was not a good one for Simona Hallett. A four-year ban, and yeah, this is obviously set the tennis tennis community into a, a frenzy if to me it feels like the biggest doping situation with a player since probably maria sharapova what was your instant reaction when the band kind of got handed out and the fact that we actually actually have an outcome to talk about because up till now that really was the talk the fact that we were just sort of waiting and waiting things would keep getting it get, keep getting delayed but now we have a decision
2: yeah, there were noises that something was going to be released. Mm. I think, irrespective of what you think about Simona Hallett and what you think about um, the verdict, having a verdict, I think is something that can be celebrated in the fact that finally there has been a verdict because it did take a while, there have been some twists and turns. there was an additional allegation related to her biological passport that materialised a little bit later mm-hmm. in the year and obviously we weren't necessarily aware that, um, that this kind of the hearing happened um, earlier in the summer. Yeah. We, were, we didn't know that that happened and that there would be a verdict coming. So um, my initial reaction was that I was pleased that there would be progression on this case because living in limbo cannot be fun for anybody. Um, but having said that, am, am I surprised by what we're hearing? Mm. No, I think it's, it's very uh, unlikely, given how long this went on and the additional charge that there wouldn't be a ban being handed out here. I think the thing that's in, in question is the four years as the maximum offence for a first offence when it comes to doping, which is very different in other sports. Um, It does seem, and a lot of the community are seeing this as quite harsh in terms of the fact that this is four years and this will be, you know, a big chunk of her career at the latter stages. You know, she's 31 now. She'll next be eligible to play in October of 2026. Is it a career ender? Unless there is... Um, unless she is cleared in the court of arbitration for sport, I, I do think it probably is. Obviously, Serena and Venus played well past that day, but I mean, it is a very different situation to be in. Um, and given the nature of the sport and the game, it's a long time to be away. Um, in terms of the verdict, um, I, I do think it's it's quite damning. It does say that the that they took what she said of the fact that it was a contamination, but the evidence shows that there was. Too much in her system for it to have happened accidentally. accidentally. Exactly. So that is what's been said. So it is. It is a damning indictment on her um, in this sense, um, and it's one that's really divided in the tennis community between people who want to see them play um, and people
1: who, yeah. really kind of think that this is a, a big betrayal. It is. It is very, very polarizing, isn't it? In the in the tennis community, and we're seeing players and coaches come out on on either side of the spectrum, arguably the two most visible um, uh, showings of acknowledgement um, of of this verdict. Well, first of all, let's talk about Serena Williams on the far left side. She tweeted, uh, well, cryptically, she tweeted eight. It wasn't exactly a cryptic. I mean, it wasn't. No, I I, I mean, she was was basically saying four years wasn't enough. I, I wanted to see eight years. Oh, well, that's your interpretation. When it was
2: eight is a better number, I took that as meaning Serena has seven Wimbledon titles and that would have oh, been an Maybe eight. there's a double meaning going on. From the Simona Hallett thing. Oh, I, think, mm. I think people were putting the pieces together at the time and people think there are multiple layers to this, but it would have meant an eight Wimbledon title. So, and then there's been a few things that she's been liking as well about the idea that, you know... Um, when your childhood dreams turn out that they were essentially doping is something that she liked from another player so she's made her opinion very clear on this um, and I do think that it does make you think that Serena Williams is a very intelligent woman who very much understands how the PR machine works she knows what this tweet will do she knows it's getting picked up and she knows people will understand the meaning of it so does she know something that we don't? She's been very close to, you know, Patrick Moore Togolu. She's very close in the tennis community. And you feel like this is something where she clearly believes that this this ban yeah. should happen, and that it makes, calls into question how clean athletes were at different times during the Grand Slam, uh, during her Grand Slam finals that she's had.
1: I mean, this to me was like, this was the, the Eugenie Bouchard to the Maria Sharapova. This was like the, she's a cheater, like, quote that that you know Bouchard, you know I feel like it's famous for now in in relation to to Sharapova, and uh, I think it's interesting to see that we've not really had that many players. I think come out with a definitive opinion, and maybe because Serena Williams is no longer in, or you know she's still kind of evolving away it from waited, tennis, waiting mm. for the
2: verdict. Yeah. I think in a big way, and I think now in the same way we've had these conversations that it takes time to process
1: because i think a lot of people do you think serena has in her mind that wimbledon final because i've been seeing a lot of reports on social media around the fact that it was categorically um, it was categorically a true that um, that simona had at that time was ne- like was negative and there was nothing performance enhancing in her body but do you think in serena williams's mind she she firmly has that in given how close she, she got or has got, um, you know, to that tap Margaret Court record? I think we would be naive to think that tennis is clean.
2: Um, and I think when it comes to this result, um, it makes you realise that even some of the athletes that you think have the highest integrity or people that have said have the highest integrity, the only thing that we can go on here is the evidence, and the evidence says that this is not a clean athlete at this time. Um, and when it comes to historic testing unless we are retesting samples for different things that didn't show up at the time, they are clean samples that were given Mm. there were 16 I think tests that were done in competition 11 outside of competition in the year uh, when she won Wimbledon I believe, so they all did come back as, as negative of anything but at the same time it just throws that doubt now, doesn't it? Because it's so rare that we do see yeah. a high-profile player who is, who is doping in, in tennis. Yeah. And when you think about the people with the best results, that's probably the people who are performing the best. That's the point of doping. So I think it, it does call into question. But, I mean, the, the big thing with this is... A lot of people are defending someone, ignoring the evidence. Yeah, which I think they're
1: going is... with emotional feeling, and they're going with their heart. And, and perhaps, probably, the most obvious example of that is Patrick Muratoglu, mm. who is pretty, he is probably second to Simona Halep in terms of putting out statements um, supporting mm. and almost you know, uh, denigrating um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the drugs panel because he's so clear, he's so adamant that Simona Hallett is innocent. I mean, I'll just read some excerpts from what he posted on social media. He posted a, a statement saying, I cannot believe the decision that the ITIA has taken today in the case of Simona. I am extremely shocked and I have been, during the whole year, by the methods and the behaviour of an organisation that is supposed to treat the players fairly and try to establish the truth. I mean, he, again, he if, if Serena is over here, Muratoglu is way over on the other side of the room, and ah, it's hard because you know, Simone Hallett was working with the, the Muratoglu team, and yeah, it's it's tricky because I feel like you know him and his his name, and his staff, and all that sort of stuff. That's also going to be wrapped up in this decision as well. It's not just it's not change. just you know Serena Hallips uh, you know career on the line. There are, as you said, there are other things at stake as well. Absolutely, and I think that's something that can't be ignored when someone makes mm. a
2: statement like this that he has invested interest in the result. I think someone like Darren Cahill, I think he's been putting out similar um, similar, I guess not necessarily similar in the statement but similar in terms of the intention of the statement of standing by Simona and I think Mm. obviously Patrick Montogolu is someone who really is only giving one side of something and looking for the truth I think is something that's a bit different from establishing what is there in the evidence Um, and when it comes down to what, what he does say I think you know, the four points he wants to say about the integrity we've seen in so many different cases for all different things, that people can be blindsided by something, and someone can be a certain way, from your experience, but there may be things that go on behind the scenes you don't know. I always said this on the podcast, you cannot know what someone has put in their body or what someone Mm. has taken, because you are not there, you do not know, and the same way Sharapova didn't even know, Mm. she said at the time that was a banned substance on the list, she did know what she was taking, so... I think that the thing that I would say on the when it comes to historic results and why I think this Patti Matoglu situation is so explosive is that when she changed her coaching situation, she actually did sever the ties with the Romanian anti-doping authority. Mm. Um, that's allegedly, but that's two statements from the previous people who were double-checking her tests. So that does coincide with her joining with Patti Matoglu. Yeah. So yeah. that's why I don't necessarily doubt things from previously because she was getting things double-tested. Um, so I think It's all very messy When it comes to evidence When it comes to feelings And what we want to believe Do we want to believe That tennis is clean And do we want to believe That Simona Hallett Is a drugs cheat
1: Well I mean She's going to be Taking this The the, the court of arbitration To uh, You know Appeal, appeal. Mm. Where do you think Ultimately This This wound up I mean I feel like We're in the, Like the next stage Of getting to An absolute Final final result Um and I think, you know, for me, I I think Simona Halep, she's still hoping to get back to the tour. I feel like we see her in the gym. She's like staying in peak physical condition. I almost don't know whether that's like a coping type mechanism and we're almost in denial about it. And then she's like, oh, this whole thing will blow over. i be back on on the tour in, in, in a jiffy. But where do you see where do you see this ending up? Do you, do you think we will see Simona Halep back on the WTA tour? I think it's a very different
2: situation to Sharapova's in the sense that Sharapova broke the news herself. Um, it was a two-year sentence. I think the nature of how Sharapova worked with the authorities on that probably did help that mm. in some way. Um, normally, these sentences or no sentences, sorry, these um, rulings do go down in terms of the ban. They don't normally say the full term. Um, but in terms of the Halep situation, I think the. Even if intention's taken out of it, it would still be a two year ban. Yeah. And this ruled that there was intention there, which makes it four. So it was either gonna be yeah. fully only for her to get back on the tour immediately and be at performance and be trading now, mm. it would have to be thrown out, which is very unlikely at this point given the continuing and mounting evidence in this case. So we'll be we see her on tennis court again. Um if she really wants to prove her point, maybe. Yeah.
1: Okay. I mean, we see we do see players at like at that age on, on the tour, but it's... Well, Hingis tested positive for cocaine, and she yeah. came
2: back after that yeah. and said that that was going to retire, because she didn't want to go through the process of defending no. herself, so it doesn't get easy, and, and she didn't choose to defend herself in that, and it doesn't necessarily completely ruin your legacy, depending on how things are handled, mm-hmm. so we will update you as there is more information, but... Um it, it, it has dominated yeah. the conversation. It certainly from blotted, press
1: rooms yeah, and, and it's certainly blotted her like it regard regardless of what happens from now. I mean you just very quickly touched on her legacy. This surely is gonna this is gonna block the copybook, is it not? Completely, I think,
2: but in but, terms of how things stand over time, I don't think it will mean that her achievements will be completely forgotten mm-hmm. on the tennis court. Um, but I do think that The way that she's handled the whole situation of misleading people throughout the entire Mm. time with the interviews and trying to control the narrative in a slightly peculiar way, I think doesn't lend itself to someone Mm -hmm. who is being completely honest with what they're saying.
1: Well, let's move on. Let's move on to talking about the tennis we have got in Manchester. We're going to be talking about Great Britain versus Australia today, a real tough matchup for GB um, but it was a very exciting matchup because we got in the first tie. Jack Draper on debut against Tanasi Kokinakis both players I thought played out of their skin it was a match really that came down to a couple of points here or there arguably Kokinakis would have probably got the job done I mean he did serve for it but I mean Jack Draper he won this in three sets 6-7 6-3 7-6 7-4 in that final set's high break What a match and what a way to kick off GB's campaign in Manchester.
2: Yeah, it was um, a fantastic start. I mean, I actually thought it was quite special to be there for Jack's first match Mm. because it feels like he is at this new point of his career where it's really hopefully getting started. And we'll hear from him in a bit about, you know, his career so far and some of those injury issues and hoping to stay fit. And it just shows you that he is also mentally tough as well as very talented because he was behind pretty much the whole of this match. Um, he was down in that final set, fucking like a it. it did say impress. he got a bit nervous and kind of a little bit bottled it, I would say. And he was 4-2 down in that tie break and came back to win it. So um, I honestly think that it was such an accomplished performance. And to come back and win like that, I mean, that was the match
1: that saved the tie. Because that wasn't a match that we should have won really no. at 5-4 in that third set. No, I agree. And as you said, what's so impressive, I think, about it is the season the roller coaster season that, that Jack Draper has had and we're going to hear from him now on how he looks back on his season so far
3: Yeah it's been a, an incredibly challenging year for me um, you know I started the year at 38 in the world everything was going great um, and then just got hit by a load of injuries really um, maybe a few mistakes that i learned from and, and stuff I could have done better but um, the, the one before uh, Wimbledon was a real blow. You know, I didn't play for a month or two, um, and just spent loads of time, sort of in a bit of a rut, trying to get out of it. But I worked really hard to to get myself back. I didn't take any time off. I knew that my sort of time would come again because my tennis has always been there it's just been my fitness so um i've tried to sort of work that out with my team and, and really get back to basics and um know that i have to put in a lot of work to, to get it right um and yet new york was a massive boost for me i needed it and then obviously coming here i've been really confident again I've just, just been able to stay injury free, that's the kind of secret, you know, there's no there's no big thing, it's, it's just more time on court, more competing, uh, more lessons learned from matches I've either won or lost, um, and it's, it's all coming together and helping me a lot, so hopefully I can just keep on, keep on going to the end of the season and, and finish really strong.
2: It sounds like there's no lack of belief there, you know, he, he knows he has the game and that was something that does come up that as soon as he's back on a tennis court, he picks up from where he left up and the results he had previously and, you know, the U.S. Open, he went want better. So I think it was really, really impressive. Um, and I also think it was a great decision from uh, Captain Leon Smith because um, I know that you knew that I was going to bring this one job, but... <laughs> I can't believe it's actually taken this long. I, I didn't have a chance. I was, I was being serious for the first part <laughs> of the podcast, but... Um, I'm still being serious now because you did call it didn't you, I, you I'm
1: a Davis yeah. Cup strategist John I've yeah. watched so many yeah. of these three I just go by players. the rankings I, I, don't, I don't think about it too much but you you go you go into the trenches you're thinking about the matchups and the, the Jack Draper lefty the lefty yeah. serve yeah uh, it's, it's a big thing so I, I was thinking about particularly it. against Kocknakis I was
2: thinking about it, because they wouldn't have known that Kokonakis would have been picked necessarily but having a lefty is an advantage and we looked at Kokonakis' stats he's won 18% of matches against lefties but 46% or yeah. 40, I think 46% of matches against right-handers mm. so it's not a great matchup for him uh, and it does kind of add another sort of string to your bow when it comes to um, the Davis Cup team and in terms of selection I believe that not enough captains go high risk, high reward because if you don't try and put out the team that you think can win three, you can end up in a situation where you can lose three or you can just get picked to the post because playing by the rankings doesn't necessarily get you the, the win that you need. And for me, this was the perfect way to play. Um, and I think you can't really swap in a, a Murray you know, in the, mm. the doubles because you need to win three. This yeah. is a, the big match and it's such a tough group. I and mean, for those who aren't aware, it's... Britain, Australia, France and Switzerland. Switzerland yeah. So this is the toughest, I would say, of the four um, destinations for the finals at this point. And in terms of what what was selected, I think it, it did make perfect sense. And um, mm-hmm. we also, I think we will see Norrie this week, maybe a
1: little bit later mm-hmm. in the week, but...
2: You've got to get up to a good start in this
1: competition to have a chance. Yeah, and Jack Draper absolutely did that. Although it was interesting because it, it, I feel like expectedly there were nerves at the beginning because yeah, Kokonakis was holding, I would say, quite comfortably in those early stages and, and Draper was having a lot tougher time um, holding. But I, I think that just shows actually how much he cares about you know about this. And it was interesting, I think, to hear particularly about the team tennis environment and how you know he candidly said in, in press conference how at the US Open he had a great run but he didn't really talk to he didn't really talk to, he didn't really talk to to anyone else so he really liked didn't he the environment of, of team tennis and how that brings you know everyone together the 9000 strong crowd there as well cheering him on he really got engaged with that um, at certain moments feeding off that energy and, I mean, ultimately it paid dividends in the end and arguably it's probably one of the reasons he was able to pull through.
2: Yeah, I think there was the pressure to, to lift your game. I think also, you know, playing away in the US it can also give you an advantage that there is a little bit less focus there. Um, it does give you that sort of freedom to, to swing. Um, but for me, I think I, I was so clear that he was going to fight for every point. He was down break points yeah. in his first two service games. He clawed them
1: back. His wingspan is is he moves so yeah. quickly as well, yeah. and he's, he can really, really run. He's like Stretch Armstrong, I swear. <laughs> when like he's like running on the when he's running um, when he's, he's on the run going wide, some of the gets he made were
2: was very impressive. He moves mm-hmm. really well for a tall lad. There was a great passing shot that he made at a really important point of five ball in mm-hmm. the third, and he never he never gave up. And I don't think we've seen you know Jack have to. Sort of hustle like that, you know, in, in this sort of way. I think normally it's the front foot sort of tennis, but he was he was doing both. And what a way to finish it with that winner <laughs> down down the line. But a bit strange. Is he blanking Andy Murray in the US? So he put him when he bumps
1: into <laughs> him. Surely well, he not. He's just he's just so in the zone. He's so in the zone. Um, but I, know, I thought it was quite interesting. I don't know if you spotted at the end he did a little darts celebration, and I was and you know we were looking at each other and we're like what what was that about? So. We did ask that in, in, in press, and uh, they were talking about, I say, the team environment, they love playing darts together, and, and he was asked, who's the best darts player? Is it Jack Draper? No, it's, at, no, it's not. It's uh... He says he goes long every time yes. <laughs>
2: and I'm like, maybe that's not the best celebration, Jack, in terms of if you're not great at it, but it's so hard to keep up with yeah. the young guns and they're celebrating the mm-hmm. Telephones, we're hanging up the phone, Is someone catching the dart, and then yeah. Leon was catching it, so... I think it's a bit of fun seeing him have fun on the court as well and I think it does sound like on the dart side of things that Andy Murray's competitive. to about. stick to the tennis. Well,
1: sounds- J-P needs to stick to tennis. Forget the darts. Forget the darts. Just be good at one thing. You know. <laughs> and just a quick word on, on Kokkinakis because it, it, again, he was very candid in afterwards and said in relation to his season so far he feels like he's been a, in very good winning positions and not capitalised on them and this is another one of those situations and what, what do you make of that because I feel like I'd say he's not the greatest front runner is he I always think that particularly with that Andy Murray match he had at the Australian Open what, what, it, what is it is it just nerves is it or do you, is, is there anything is there anything else going on there do you think he, he made some comparisons
2: with what his career was like when he was younger obviously he did have injuries as well in a similar way that Jack has and there was that comparison that came from him and I think it doesn't get easier you know that he was someone who had so much promise and people thought would really do something sort of mega on the tennis circuit mm. um, and, he, and he obviously hasn't been able to quite do that I mean his career high ranking is nowhere near where it should be given his talent level yeah great it's like 67 or something in the world yeah. and I mean he plays He's comfortably top 50 top, yeah easily and I think that must be really frustrating and if you look at someone who has that game who doesn't get there well it, it's going to be between years. and the fact that in press we didn't and no, say we are talking about press in general um, nobody actually mentioned kind of the fact that he had been in that situation a lot he obviously was thinking about it and he thought about it at that moment that he's, he's not a closer mm-hmm. um, and I think that must get tough because as you get a bit further in your career you do think that those opportunities might not come around as much and it becomes more intense so he seemed like an absolutely lovely chap and he was Mm. so open about it but you do have to think that you need to know in those moments that you back yourself and I'm not sure sure he thought he was going to serve that one out
1: yes and Jack Draper truly capitalised on that but we're going to take a quick break now join us in the second half where we're going to be recapping all the other results from the GB Australia tie and chatting about the great crowd debate don't go anywhere Welcome back to the Tennis Weekly podcast, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. And now we're going to move on to match two from GB versus Australia. Dan Evans versus Alex de Minaur and Chris. This was this was topsy turvy to say the least. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, we
2: were actually waiting for Jack in press, and the first set was over. <laughs> it was over in a flash, it seemed like, mm-hmm. and breadstick. It was a breadstick, breadstick to Evans. What? Yeah, I mean, I think this was a, a really smart selection again because there was a good head-to-head here and there's no way you're not going to play Alex Diminar when it comes to your Australia mm. squad. So they could definitely bank on knowing who that was going to be and Cam doesn't have the best head-to-head against him. So, Lost to him in Canada. Well, it makes it makes a lot of good sense. So, I mean, it was a really high standard of tennis from, from Dan. I think if you're Diminar, who's come in with the most form of anybody in this group... I think it's definitely got to be a tough mm-hmm. loss and it clearly was a tough loss um, in press and you think maybe it's a case that, it, you know, Davis Cup, you do find itself down sometimes but the intensity of getting that next one, having lost mm-hmm. one where it's so close, I mean, would he potentially have done or come through had it been a case that he didn't need that one to survive yeah. the tie in? you feel like there was a lot of pressure on that one. And for Dan, it was more of a, a free swing than it was anything else.
1: What impressed you most about Dan Evans' performance in that three-set victory?
2: Well, when I saw him at the US Open, I think it's this wonderful balance of neutralising a point with the slice, but also being able to attack. And the thing that I particularly like about the way that he plays, against him and us, someone who runs every ball down... It's very hard to know which way he's going to hit the ball. Yeah. He really does wait patiently before he hits, but he also disguises it so beautifully on that forehand. So for, he's a very tricky customer. If his game is on song and he doesn't always have the biggest margins, but when it's on song, yeah. he was able to hit through um, Alex Immanar in a court that was
1: described as dead by Hakanakis. Yeah. Well, that, I think that played into Evans' attack, particularly slice. on the, that sliced backhand, which has, I think, become a real nuisance hasn't it particularly this season we saw Bring it back the slides we saw it in its glory on, well, you know, on his route to what you well, know Washington. Why it was sliced out the competition by Gregor Dimitrov yeah exactly it? but we saw Evans use this ploy a lot uh you know to, to, on his title run in Washington DC um you know several weeks ago and again he deployed it a lot against De Menor. and it was it was interesting hearing about the court because as you said Cockenack has described it to us as dead. it looks like a very slow court top spin just basically being neutralised by uh, you know by the court itself and yeah I felt like Dan Evans took real advantage of that in the match against the yeah I think he played
2: a very tactically um, strong match um, that, that third set genuinely was very tight um, there were yeah. moments where a couple of points at 30-all could have gone either way and so I think he, he did well to escape some of them um, but kept a really level head in Again, we're seeing a Dan Evans who really could do some damage on the tour. You know, he's he's had a career high ranking after the Washington. He's win. enjoying his tennis at the moment. I think. I think he really backs himself. I yeah. think he's really really dialed in, yeah. and that's kind of what Leon uh, said. After he was mm. impressed that it's some of the best practicing, some of the best hitting he's mm. seen from Dan. One of the best
1: performances. I think if you put him in front of a crowd, there's something there that that elevates his game because this was his. I believe this was his biggest. Victory by number of ranking spots um, in in singles in Davis Cup um, against Alex de who who is above who is above number twelve, yes. number twelve exactly. Who you know took set off of Daniel Medvedev at the uh, at the US Open, reached the final in who, Canada. Yeah, you so know, he's, he's and lost Cabos. Yeah, and I <laughs> think he's also beaten yeah exactly.
2: He's also beaten Medvedev this year yeah. as well. So a very impressive result. And if you're Diminar, I think he was a bit disappointed with this mm. because. He wants to be able to produce heroics. Maybe
1: a bit too many miles in the legs from all the tennis he's played recently. There were some questions
2: about that, but I honestly don't think that would be the case. There's been enough of a break since the US Open. um, And he's he's fit and he's young and he Mm. he moves better than anybody else. So I don't think it's that. I think tension does a lot of things to the body. Um, But he was a bit dejected in that. um, I think, you know, it's, it's a tough gig, you know, coming out here. There won't always be... Um, the crowd on your side, which can be a bit
1: tricky and can add to the pressure. But... What? Well, there might not be any crowd whatsoever because that was one of the things that Alex de Menor was disappointed about in press. It was a question I asked him, uh, particularly about the fact that, you know, today he's playing in front of 9,000 fans and then tomorrow, we're going to get on the scheduling with late do in a bit, but tomorrow he's probably going to be playing in front of a crowd of about 50 odd people. We're going to count everyone well, and we'll speak yes. to all of you. Exactly, yeah. exactly. On, but this is this is what he had to say about it.
0: Well, it is a bit disappointing, obviously. Um, ultimately, every single tournament we play around the world, we're playing in front of It's a pretty fast press. Uh, and just to be playing a tournament as big as this one and, and to be playing with an empty crowd it is a, a bit disappointing uh, it was great to play today in front of uh, a massive crowd you know, even if it was uh, you know, uh, in hostile territory but it, it is great it, it creates a great atmosphere and you know that's what Davis Club is, a, is about but the problem is come tomorrow if there's going to be a, a pretty good chance that we'll play uh, in front of I don't know, people. And to see an ent- uh, stadium that is uh, ent- it's, it's not ideal.:
1: I feel like he's not the only one with those sentiments, is he? Because Stan Vavrinka yesterday said very similar things, didn't he, on, on social media that caught the attention of a certain uh, Mr. P.K.
2: Yeah, Stan did actually tweet him directly. Wow. Um, as well as the ITF. Fire. And the Davis Cup, where he did a, a video where he went around the arena, which had a hand Was he out. counting? Was he counting how many fans were in the stadium? Yeah, I did feel a little bit bad for the Swiss fans that were there, because they didn't know what this tweet was going to be, the video was going to be used for at the time. So they were waving at the video <laughs> very happily. But obviously that it has now, now gone sort of viral um, because of some of the exchanges that have happened where... Derek Piquet has kind of got involved because it was a very sarcastic thank you Mm. um, in terms of where Davis Cup is now and that's not just um, necessarily about the situation here but it's about the format change that's happened and that's the bigger picture here where um, the qualifiers are played home and away they still have the same Davis Cup feel but when you get to the the matches here and the, the group stages to qualify for the finals they are all played on the same court and they are played in the home destination of one of the four teams. So, therefore, you do get these matches where in Manchester, France versus Switzerland on a Tuesday is probably not going to be that well attended. And even, you know, on the Wednesday to, today, it wasn't sold out no. for GB, but there were.
1: Obviously- I, I still was impressed though. I mean, oh. 9,000 on a Wednesday well, afternoon. Exactly. Well,
2: there's 13,000 coming on, on Sunday. Sunday for the France mm. match, which is great. But I'm just saying that
1: this isn't necessarily... It's the extremes that I think exist from one day to the next, which I think is the most disappointing thing. Exactly. It's, it, I think what's so frustrating is that it just feels like it's inescapable... With the format that we have
2: Yeah I mean we, we know it better than most We've been to The Czech Republic yes. Watching
1: um, D- Doubles till Past midnight Yeah but We genuinely are like Like part of five people we,
2: we love it We'll make a noise For anybody <laughs> at that point But I do think that You know Then only one representative Comes over maybe From Australia Or mm. one person comes over And it doesn't necessarily Have that same We're, we're all going to go over It's going to be Us here for the home tie Us yeah. at the away tie So I do think though um, Derek Pika is obviously Not everyone's favourite person Because of a certain Popular singer And some of his Behaviour off-court A lot of his behaviour When it comes to Davis Cup Is also not exemplary um, Obviously bowing out From um, that deal As well As part of the the, the Business side of it. It's like
1: like Used and abused The Davis Cup essentially He's come in And they've done some things And then they left
2: early Yeah and They've kind of left Something where you can't avoid These dead Mm. Dead Atmosphere matches that happen, mm. which takes out the spirit of the sport. But he did do a tweet to try and defend this by linking to the fact that the group stage last year, there were 113,268 fans that were there. So I did some maths to try Ooh, to yeah. work out. I'm glad it was you, not me, doing that maths. Yeah, I got up the collector set spreadsheet, <laughs> um, and that's about 4,600 a day. When if you look at it and the numbers from here, it's about 10,000 every other day which is when the whole nation mm. is playing and then on the other days there's a handful of fans so really those numbers they do not tell the story of very popular matches not many matches but in terms of how Manchester's performing I think there's about 40,000 tickets that have been sold-ish is what they're expecting mm. so that is pretty, pretty substantial when there were 113,000 total for across all four cities so it It is a very unfortunate situation. It is unavoidable, I would say,
1: Joel. Is there a solution? Oh, well, I was... You beat me to it. I was going to... I wanted to ask you that question. But, yeah, I think it's... I do think it's... Fly-in fans. It's... Yeah, I don't know. It's... it's, Put them on a jet. I think the format... In order to change that, you have to change... Quite simply, you have to change the format. And um, I don't know if they're going to do that next year. They're not going to just revert to what it was and just have, like, a home and away tie situation can emulate Billie Jean King
2: Cup where you have the qualifiers and then it's one finals Mm. so you don't have this situation where you have the group stages in a similar sort of format to the finals but then the finals obviously that is another sort of kettle of fish when it comes down to where they're played well it does all get very complicated but in terms of if you are keeping this format, everyone has said it's unavoidable.
1: Yeah. It's there. a necessary evil, isn't it? In in a in a way. Is it necessary? It's unavoidable. It's a format issue. Mm. Right. It's a shame because yeah, I think that's what is so frustrating to the players. I think, you know, they like to play, of course, in front of fans. You know, this is their this is their trade. They're the best in the world. And the fact is they wanna, you know, they wanna play in front of, of crowds to you know, that's where they get the best the best engagement. Yeah,
2: and that's that's why you play Davis Cup, and it does also lead to, and we've seen this so many times with the Blue Jean King Cup, where scheduling can play a really big role in it, in terms of if you are in the night session or playing later in the day, and then you might have to come back the next morning, and you can always be scheduled out of a tournament because of the, the impact that would have on, you know, your body, and that's something that we also were very aware of, it, and a certain... Yeah. Davis Cup captain Layton Hewitt was also very aware of that. Although Great Britain are playing every other day, that's not the case today for Australia. So here's what you had to say. You just
1: said that you had a, it's a bit of a pretty long day kind of today, playing against tomorrow. Yeah, who did the draw? Very, uh, very quick turn. <laughs>
0: Interesting one isn't it? Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: How how do you prepare your team for such a short turnaround to make what match together? I'm uh, not sure. we we'll am just have to wait and see. Yeah, I don't think great enough to do it, so you know have to work out something for tomorrow.
1: He was not happy, was he, about the scheduling. I do think if you look at if you look at how it's worked out, Australia I feel like have got a short straw back to back Great Britain France Yeah, the two, two, toughest ties. The two toughest ties but I did look at this every
2: other team is playing on consecutive days except Great Britain um, and so I think that that will present challenges definitely and I think that probably the team that would be best able to play like that would actually be Great Britain given the depth, mm. the depth we have in the singles um, and also some of the, the rotation options we have in the doubles so if you're, you know, like are relying on Alex Diminar, and there's talk about, you mean you've asked about how his legs are, I mean, definitely that's not ideal. And there is no way you can solve it. And that's why, actually, um, Hewitt was at press by himself because his players need to be there yeah. one, one year on, tomorrow. First in, yeah. first on tomorrow. So um, not doing press was the option they chose to take, and that was the point they wanted to make. And you do get into this situation when you do have these round robin
1: formats that. It is luck of the draw, but it is also very much home fave, home advantage. It, yes, home advantage in terms of and the it, number of in the crowd, mm. and then also this, the f- favorite like favorable scheduling as well.
2: Yes, but and also probably you can say Malaga is basically a home crowd. Thank given how you know. many Brits go on holiday yeah. there where the finals <laughs> will take place <laughs> you know, in November, so I mean it couldn't have worked out better for for the Brits, mm. and I think there's even more pressure there for us to make sure we deliver on this because everything is in our favour yeah. with this And
1: I mean particularly as well we, you know it was, it was a heartbreaker almost kind of last year almost like a missed opportunity and I think this is almost a time where you know the team will be looking at it like you know we need to make we need to make amends you know mm-hmm. we, sh- we should have got to the finals last year we've got a good enough squad definitely um, I, I guess that you know just on that I think the the important uh, you know this brings into that importance of the fact that every tie counts and to their credit Australia did win the doubles match despite being two, two ties down two matches down sorry and they did it in straight sets um, and I just want to talk about that doubles match because we were treated there I think we had three Wimbledon doubles champions on the court in Neil Skupski, Max Purcell and Matt Ebden. Dan Evans as well, no such thing. A on the doubles Rome finalist A Rome finalist as well. I mean it was a very high quality, high caliber match.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was probably the toughest doubles that we're gonna see this mm-hmm. week. I think obviously they've won World together, um, Edden and Purcell I think Percell's having a fantastic season on the singles court and the doubles court. They are very, very, very good together. And I think in those key moments, knowing each other's game and playing more regularly together, even though they aren't currently partnered together, um, Edwin's having a great season with Bopana, uh, but actually just made fresh from the US Open final. I think it does really show that it's not over till it's over. And we saw that for the the GB girls, that you can lose the first two, you can have lost the first two, they've lost the match before you even got onto court, but winning the doubles and winning the doubles in straight sets matters really? because when it comes down to the number of um, ends that you won in each one, as well as the number of games, it was actually level mm. on the number of games won today because two straight sets win and one straight sets loss, yeah. that actually works out even. So there is still hope. This still
1: can get messy. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there are... Just looking at the other group stages before we finish, there are some other heavyweights that are in... Worst positions and Spain. Spain are hosting the finals in Malaga. and No Carlos Alcaraz. Carlos Alvarez dropped out. They lost three 0 to Czech Republic. It's it's
2: not looking good. No. I would say that, and um, I'm not sure that will set up the best week, you know, for for the Spanish fans there. And maybe the Brits will have to up the attendance because Spain there might be a slight loss <laughs> in of interest there. So. I think, and again, mm. the, the thing that I would say is that, you know, it can spring an upset, anything can happen, but at the same time, it's very hard to know who you should play on your team and how you mm-hmm. should work. And I mean,
1: if you look at the Italians, they did lose... I was going to say, any, anything can happen, and arguably, we'll end on this, that is up there probably as one of the biggest Davis Cup upsets in, in history. The fact that Canada defeated Italy without... Felix team. Milos Raonic, Denis Shapovalov was on the bench, and they still pull out a victory over Italy, who had a much better-looking team on paper. Yeah, I mean, they weren't at full strength, but you think that Sonigo
2: and Massetti would be able to get it done, and they didn't even win a set in the singles. So maybe having your back up against the wall like that really was something that frustrated them. Yeah. I mean, it really must have, because um, you would think, why are you not playing... Uh, Shapovalov in that even if he isn't fit the rest of his team really don't have experience at that level but clearly the captain knew something that we didn't because for some of these players who (laughs) I honestly have not necessarily said that I was particularly
1: familiar with World number 200 Galano who plays college tennis at North Carolina State University defeated Lorenzo Sonigo number 38 in straight sets and then we had impressive Diallo
2: Sing, singles ranking mm. one five eight, taking out Massetti in straight sets, not, not even a tiebreak in that one. So, I mean, like, this is this is it. This is why we love
1: Davis Club because it does bring a it's different atmosphere. Wild West of tennis, yeah. It's it? a different atmosphere to the tour, and it, and and it does throw up results that you just you just would not expect, and. uh yeah, that's what we're here in Manchester for. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. But I'm hoping, yeah, GB can uh, we we can continue on uh, from a win uh, with Australia. I mean, we've still got a couple of tricky ties to come against France and Switzerland. Tennis Weekly, of course, will be releasing episodes to cover all the action as we go in Manchester, but. We're going to leave it there, though, listeners. I hope you've enjoyed our Davis Cup catch-up from Manchester. We're going to be, of course, covering all the action as we go, as well as having some other talking points from outside the competition. So it's not going to be just Davis Cup. Chris has been thinking about those talking points across the day. Can you give them a little, little sneak peek, Chris? Let's just say Mexico Ooh. features very heavily. Oh, okay. Guadalajara, okay. I I'm excited. And I'm not being your 2 be holiday. <laughs> well, you're not, but maybe I am. No, um, yes, no, it's going to be very, very exciting. But for now, remember to subscribe to us to stay up to date on all the action to come from the ATP and WTA tours. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcasting platforms out there. And if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can also follow us on social media for all of our updates from Manchester or email the show.
2: We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, X, formerly known as Twitter. And all of those at the Handle Tennis Weekly Pod. You can always purchase Tennis Weekly merchandise exclusively at Etsy. It's Etsy.com shop slash podcast. You can also email us on tennisweeklypod at gmail.com or check out our website tennisweekly.co.uk.
1: And we will be back on Friday at Tennis Weekly HQ for our next Davis Cup catch-up. So I hope you can join us for that. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Chris. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. We'll see you again soon.